Thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's a blessing to be here. And you may get more than you bargained for this evening because uh, a lot of you I do know and have, you've helped me through this storm in my life and some of you I don't. Um, as she said, my name is Angela Smith. And uh, one thing I will tell you is I'm very real and genuine in my testimony. So is it okay to do that here? <laughs> um, and as I said, you may question the ways of God as I did as I go through my story. Um, it, it's been difficult. It is sad. But God has been with me every step of the way. So I will be touching on, as I take you through my journey, I'll be touching on three areas this evening. The first one is, why me, Lord? Uh, why did you choose me as Spencer's mother? And I will be touching on Psalm 139. The second part is how, Lord, how will I raise this special needs son that was born normal and now he's severely disabled? I have no idea, along with two other children. Uh, and I'll support that with scripture as well. Then the third is lessons learned amidst the heat, <laughs> surviving the refiner's fire. And this will be moving us from kind of my victim mentality into being a victor in Christ. Uh, fire is mentioned 520 times in the Bible. And so I've done a lot of research on that, and I'll get into that towards the end. So let me just start uh, with a story from my childhood, and that kind of brings us into the story with Spencer and starts answering that first question. Why me, Lord? Why am I Spencer's mother? <laughs> or why did you choose me? Um, I was, as a young girl, I was incredibly shy for reasons that could be a whole nother testimony. Uh, let's just say I was fearful of male authority, and I cried every single day of kindergarten. My mom picked me up from first grade every single day the first semester at lunch, rode me home on her bicycle, rode me back because I couldn't handle the chaos in the lunchroom. Uh, I was the baby of five children at that time, very sheltered and spoiled. <laughs> the summer of my uh, first grade year, we moved to a small town in Minnesota. And I had this memory of sitting on the sidewalk outside, and this boy rode up on his bicycle. He had a very deformed face. I had never seen somebody like this before. I was six at the time. It's almost as if somebody had smashed his face, and then, or somehow his face had been smashed, and then they tried to put it back together. He had a round piece of uh, skin sewn on the end of his nose. His eyes were all scarred. He kind of talked out of the side of his mouth. And he rode up on his bicycle and he said, hey, you want a buck? And I looked at him and I said, hmm, you're going to give me a dollar? And he goes, no, silly, hop on. So I hopped on his banana seat, held on for dear life. We rode around the block and got back and he told me, my name's Marcus Griseth and I live over there. And he told me about his family, he asked about my family. Uh, where I came from, and at that point, somewhere in that conversation, I looked straight past his face and into his heart, and I saw him for who he really was, and from that moment forward, we were fast friends, and every time people teased Marky Scripseth, I stood up for him, and uh, it just made me realize that from a very young age, I had compassion and empathy for the underdog. Whenever I would go to my mother to say, hey, mom, um, 
if I had a complaint about somebody, she would always say, have you walked a mile in their shoes? Which would always stop me in my tracks. But it gave me um, this sense of empathy and compassion to look at other people's issues and problems and put myself there for a moment. Sorry, my watch is screaming at me. So anyway, let's fast forward 30 years. And I'm sitting in my Christian grief counselor's office in my session asking, I'm incredibly angry at this point, why did God choose me to be Spencer's mother, I asked my counselor. And he looked me in the eye. He had heard a lot of the story. And he said, he quoted Psalm 139, 13. For you know my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He reminded me of what it says in Job, that the Lord had set my days. He knows everything that will happen. He sees the big picture. And, he, and I bet if you go home this week and you begin to review your life, you will see that God has had it all planned out. I'm thinking, does God really know how every day of my life is going to go? Right, learn, right turn, left turn, yield, stop, or go? I guess I was willing to give the homework a try. What else did I have to lose? So I asked God to show me how he prepared me to be Spencer's mother. And that memory that I just told you about came up in my mind. And many memories to follow that week of how I had stood up for the underdog or helped somebody that was in need. Uh, but I was always quick to look past the surface to the heart. And I was convinced now as an adult that this quality was a family trait that my mother had, my sister had, my brother had. Um, and I took my love for people and I became a teacher. I majored in elementary education and special education. So bear with me on setting the stage for Spencer. As long as I can remember, I wanted to be a mother and a wife. A wife and a mother. I guess I should put it in that order. Uh, in 2000, we built and moved into our dream home out in the country. And our children were eight, six, and three years old at the time. Life was good. All my dreams were coming to fruition on my time frame. My time frame. Our middle son, Spencer, started acting ill. He had flu-like symptoms as we were traveling to a wedding in early June. And on June 3rd, his sixth birthday, he rolled up and down the sidewalk on his new rollerblades, singing and, and just enjoying time with his siblings. And we were planning out his birthday party for when we got back home. Well, on the way home in Colby, Spencer had a seizure in the hot tub. And a full workup at the hospital showed that really the doctor just came in and said, look, when a child's brain is developing, sometimes they develop epilepsy. And I think that's what's happening here. So we will treat him with a seizure medication, and you will figure out how to deal with a child with epilepsy. And so that's what we went home with. Well, two days later, I actually told the doctor I would like to not keep him on the medicine to see what happens, see how many seizures he's going to have, how frequently they're going to be. And I did have some um, experience in this area with my special ed degree. So two days later, he had another seizure. Over the course of the next two weeks, Spencer had more and more seizures that weren't being controlled by his medication. He got confused. He began losing his speech. 
dragging his foot, having severe headaches, hallucinations, no longer able to control his bladder, talk, or feed himself. And we were just watching all this happen before our eyes. Now we knew his diagnosis went beyond epilepsy because he neurologically, physically, mentally declined from a normal six-year-old to an infant level in, over two, in the course of two weeks. Back and forth to the hospital, still had an epilepsy diagnosis. After a 10-minute seizure in the ER on June 16, 2000, the doctors realized more tests needed to be done. Instead of being surrounded by our family and friends, which was our 10-year wedding anniversary, we were renewing our vows in our new house on our property, or that's what we were supposed to be doing. We were surrounded by doctors who were perplexed and they were wanting to get a diagnosis for this mystery boy. Well, nothing was showing up in Spencer's blood or in his spinal fluid. It had been sent all over the nation. They were just trying to figure out what was in his body. There was no proof of anything. But when they came back, they said that he showed all the signs of viral encephalitis, which basically is when Spencer had just finished a strep infection, his immune system was low. So we get viruses in our body all the time, but it crossed the blood-brain barrier and went into his brain and just started eating away. So he spent two months at Children's Hospital in Denver. The first month was just kind of watching, doing more tests, trying to figure out what was wrong. Unfortunately, you can't stop a virus with antibiotics, so you just have to let it run its course. So we just watched him deteriorate more, and then another month in rehab, he slept mostly. We didn't get a lot of rehab done because he was so exhausted. His little body was so tired. So in August of 2000, we brought a severely disabled child home, 24-7 care, and we had two other children to take care of. So as you can imagine, our world was turned upside down. But the doctors had hope. They said, whatever you can get in a year out of his brain is probably what you'll have long-term. We have seen a lot of people recover almost fully from viral encephalitis, and they told us stories. So we went to work, and we did all kinds of therapies. We um, did a lot of alternative forms of therapy. Uh, after a year, we did not see much progress. So, oh, in fact, we were doing three to five hours of therapy a day, five days a week, and because insurance wouldn't cover that, we were having it covered by people who came into our home and just volunteered. So community was amazing. But at this time, I was playing God. I was angry. I walked away because I thought, you know what? How can this happen to my child, God? The God that loves me so much, my child and my family, how can this happen? So we pushed another two years in our own strength and ability. And I never totally left God. I would cry out to him when things got really bad. But each time, God would meet me in my grief. And he would give me signs that he was there. He gave me visions and a message for each one. Then in 2003, we were invited to a world neurology conference where this renowned neurologist would evaluate Spencer and give us his assessment. He, it turned out that we traveled all the way to Norway with Spencer which was not an easy task, to find out that we were doing too much. 
this doctor basically gave us his permission, us permission to quit trying so hard and maintain what we had and move forward in our life. He sat us down and he told us where Spencer's brain is right now, he's being overstimulated. Back off with some of your therapies. Focus on yourselves, your marriage, your other two children before you lose them. So um, we maintained his health. We kept living our lives beyond that. And I can't believe I had to go all the way to Norway to receive that message. But sometimes when you're trying to control things, instead of giving up control, it takes you down a lot of rabbit holes. When I got back to Colorado, I realized that Dr. Carrick really had given us permission to stop trying, me permission to stop trying to be God and turn our situation back over to God. So I was exhausted. I was losing my own health. I was a full-time caregiver. I could not imagine continuing another year, let alone a lifetime with this child. So that brings me back to the question, why me? Why did you choose me, God, as Spencer's mother? And I'm still not fully, fully sure why. I was chosen and may never know until I get to heaven. But after one of many drunken nights at my neighbor's house, I found myself face down on my office floor crying out to God, I'm still angry, God. I still don't understand all the whys, but I cannot continue the way I'm going as I know I am in a downward spiral. This will not end well. So I'm coming back to you, Lord. Please show up. I need to know that you are on my side. And I said, watch out, Satan. I'm competitive. It's a fight against you now. So I recommitted my life to God, and I left my Catholic roots. Then a fellow room mom, Suze Harvey, some of you may remember her, invited me to Church of the Rock. And I was very fearful to walk into this church with this severely disabled child. I had maybe been in a handful of churches in my life outside of the Catholic Church, but I decided to choose faith over fear. So we drove up, and guess who God placed at the front door? Sue's Harvey. <laughs> so she ushered us in, and we didn't look back. But God showed me in that moment how pieces fit together, that he orchestrates everything. I had begun to see through counseling and journaling how many of the pieces of my puzzle he had put together, and I was counting on him to guide me with the difficult pieces to come. Where would they fit? What would the picture be? I also began to see my life as a beautiful tapestry with all the messy strings on the back side somehow make sense someday. I could see limited beauty in the mess, but I began to trust God to get me to the other side where all the hard work created a stunning masterpiece. And while all of these examples are also refining me as I walk through the refiner's fire, the refinement comes later in part three, which I, once I get out of the messy middle of everything. So during many conversations about Spencer, two questions were raised by friends that I had never thought about. How do you know that Spencer didn't choose you? Do you think God and Spencer had an agreement that maybe God gave him a choice and Spencer chose the suffering to bring people to Christ? Hmm, something to ponder for sure. I know God did not want this for Spencer, and he grieves with us, but why did he allow it? Also, I know illness is part of living in a fallen world, and Satan will bring us down with illness if possible. Spencer has taught me to fight for this life and never give up, and I believe he knows his destiny and that 
and that is why he's still among us. There have been four or five conversations I've, well, the way I talk to Spencer, where I have, as if it's my job to give him permission, but he's had COVID, he's had pneumonia several times, where we didn't know if he'd come out of the hospital. So I sat on his bedside and I looked him straight in the eye and I said, honey, it's okay. If you want to be with Jesus, we will be fine. I've had that conversation with him three times at least, and he's still here. So that just goes to show you he, I feel like he knows why he's still here. So let's move into part two. How, Lord, how will you equip me with this difficult task of raising this special needs child along with two other children? Well, over the course of the first three years after Spencer came home from the hospital, God had helped us build a strong community of helpers. It truly takes a village to raise a child, uh, I think a city to raise a severe needs child. We had 50 we 15 weekly therapy volunteers. We hired a nanny who could do much of the daytime care for Spencer so I could be a room mom, go to dance class, counseling, run errands, get groceries, on and on. We were immersing ourselves in this spirit-filled church, which was taking us out of our deep grief back into life again, a life outside of the needs of Spencer. And during this time, I dug deep into scripture and began to understand the Bible and God's love for me more than ever before. I was making friends I was developing, who were uh, developing spiritual support and an accountability system for me, and I soon came up with three life verses that I memorized and carried with me wherever I went. The first one was for Spencer's healing, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. In reading on in Hebrews, Paul talks about Noah and how being warned by God of unseen future events. God asked Noah to build an ark. What does Noah do? He builds an ark. And Noah knew he heard from God, and he did what God told him. Did people think he was crazy? I think they did. But once the rain came, who was banging on the ark to get in? They could not see the unseen. They thought, rain? <laughs> but do you think Noah was glad that he was obedient and he built the ark? It was not easy. Number two, Jeremiah 20, 9, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and a future. At first, I didn't believe this scripture because everything about what had happened to Spencer hurt my heart. I didn't feel like really God had our best interests at heart. But the closer I got to him, the more I realized he grieved along with us and he just wanted me to, to step into my relationship with him every single day so that he could guide me, sometimes second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. If I didn't look too far back in the past or too far into the future, I was okay. And then the third was for supernatural strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's so many verses on strength but that was short and sweet. <laughs> and I could repeat it to myself all the time, especially on those days when I was exhausted. Um, sometimes all I could say was Jesus. 
sometimes I couldn't even say that. Sometimes I just laid my hand on my Bible. Or I would put it on my chest when I go to sleep. Sometimes I would just breathe in peace or breathe in Jesus and breathe out the stress or the anxiety or whatever I was feeling. But after I came up with many of my life verses, I wrote down every healing scripture I could find, put it on three, five, five cards, laminated them, and put them by Spencer's bed. And I read those over him as much as possible. Tried to do it every day. Uh, we got very involved with Evan's youth group. And I was a leader for the youth group. And let me tell you, when youth are on fire for God, that church is on fire for God. It's, there's something so special about seeing um, youth following Jesus and giving their testimonies and, you know, ministering to the homeless when you're at a retreat. It, it's just, yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing. So that's what was going on at our church. And uh, that just brought me closer to God as well. Worship. It was my way to enter into the Holy Spirit's presence. He met they, me there, and he gave me continual downloads about how to pull that next stitch in the tapestry of life. It was the healing salve to my hurting soul, and I began getting involved with other Christian women in Bible studies, women's retreats. Healing was beginning to take place in every area of my life, and having a relationship with God every day gave me the strength and the guidance I needed to get through the challenges. I soon began to focus on my husband and my children's passions. Seeing them have joy gave me joy. We were all working through our grief at different stages. As you know, you can revisit all the steps multiple times <laughs> when you're in the thick of, of things. But we were no longer allowing the spirit of grief to hold us back. We were stepping into life and what God had for us. I got baptized and rededicated my life to Christ. I also began working on the book that God prompted me to write when Spencer was in the hospital. Uh, one day I found myself on my knees in the parking garage with my hands in the air going, okay, God, this is over my head. I'm leaving. I don't know if Spencer will be alive when I come back tomorrow. My husband was with him. And I said, it's way over my head. What do you want me to do with this mess? And all I could hear in this still small voice was, tell your story, Angela. So I started writing things down and taping things on those cassette tapes. Remember those little cassette tape players you had? And everything got thrown in a box. And I knew someday I would write a book, but it was all in God's timing. So finally, part three, the refiner's fire. Can you tell that I like metaphors? <laughs> I describe a lot of things with metaphors. But as mis many Christians know and experience, when God has you, he wants you to always grow deeper with him. Get more intimate. Do more with the gifts that he's given you. And who does not want you to work towards God's, de God's destiny for you? Yes, I don't even like to use his name. In fact, I have my own names for him that I can't say in church. <laughs> but the whole goal of the adversary is to steal, kill, and destroy. And the closer you get to God, the more he tries to pluck those tapestry strings and reroute them. 
He does not want the masterpiece to be finished and will do all he can to keep you caught up on the messy backside as long as you allow it. Well, the good news is I've read the final chapter and God wins. And it wasn't easy for him. He had to fight Satan in the garden, sweating droplets of blood as he prayed that God would take this cup from him. And his very best friends who he asked to help him pray were asleep. And then after 39 lashings, where 40 leaves you for dead, they still didn't let him rest. And he had to pick up that cross and carry it up the hill, the cross that he would be crucified on. And all the people who ushered him in with palm branches the week before were saying, crucify him, crucify him. So I look at that and I think Jesus was even tested. And he died for each one of you and he would have died just for you. That's how much he loves you. So Brian spoke brilliantly about last week is if God is for us, who can be against us? And I really just started believing that. As much trial and tribulation that was going on, in my heart, I would really started to believe that. There was a friend that said, when I said, where is God? And she held her hand up and she said, this is God. And you're right here in the palm of his hand. He holds you. Take his hand and just walk with him every day. I'd never really seen him that way before. So that was one of those aha moments. But then as I pressed into God, prayers for Spencer's healing, our healing as a family, many things were revealed. Generational, generational sin, curses, codependent, abusive, and addictive behaviors in our marriage, historical Indian heritage on our land where we lived, spirits that needed to be prayed away. Past sexual abuse was revealed. A house cleansing was necessary. And as if daily life was not challenging enough, the fire was heating up and there was resistance from my family to step into it. Yet I knew it was necessary for our marriage and our children. So I went to work and tried to convince Russ to come alongside me. But it's very difficult for most people to believe what they cannot see. I mean, look at doubting Thomas, putting his finger in the holes in Jesus' hands to believe he had come out of the tomb. Some people need to see, touch, feel to believe. I was starting to feel the presence of evil and angels, and I believe Spencer could see them, and still does. That's a whole different talk, <laughs> but it's in the book in more detail. But all the spiritual warfare that was taking place in our lives needed to be prayed through, and we had some super prayer warriors at our church that helped us with that. So just one instance, and then I'll wrap up here. Uh, during the house cleansing process, I was led to start in the storeroom. And after I had this experience, I realized God was starting to use um, my love for worship and my gift of dance to help others. But I was home alone with Spencer. While I slept, I opened his school box. And when I pulled out one of the last pages of his kindergarten journal, it broke me wide open. This flood of tears came on like never before. We're about four years in now. I was a puddle on the cold cement floor, got retchy sobs for 30 minutes. 
it was as if I cried out all the tears that I had not cried out in the in-between tears, if that makes sense. And this is what Spencer, the last thing he would ever write about me or to me was, I love my mom. She is the best mom in the universe in his cute little phonetic, you know, the way they write in kindergarten. <laughs> in fact, I have this, this is the first part of it. The second part is on a different page, but you can see. I love L-U-V, my, M-I, mom. <laughs> but anyway, I let out four years of tears, like I said. I, after I was done, Barlow Girls, Never Alone, was playing on the radio. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that song. It described the loneliness I felt in my grief, and all I wanted was my little boy back, the little six-year-old boy that I had lost. The lyrics are, I waited for you today, but you didn't show. No, no, I needed you today, so where did you go? You told me to call, said you'd be there. And though I haven't seen you, are you still there? I cried out with no reply, and I can't feel you by my side, but I'll hold tight to what I know. You're here, and I'm never alone. And though I cannot see you, and I can't explain why, since I deeded you the assurance you placed in my life, we cannot separate because you are a part of me. And though you are invisible, I trust the unseen. So that brought me back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. A couple years later, as I was learning that, a dance to that song for my own personal healing, my dance teacher said, you're going to do this at recital this year, a solo. And I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. It's not about you. It was so out of my comfort zone. But I did it. Then God had me dance for the thorn five years later. Um, I took my first dance class at the age of 36 after the worst year of my life because I just wanted to try something new. Um, but the thorn was kind of absurd, honestly. This, I mean, how this happened. The whole experience was a God thing, but <laughs> I went to church, went up for prayer. God had already said, you need to go try out for the thorn, and I'm like, the dancers, the aisle dancers are 16 to 20 years old. I was 48 at the time. And I walked up for prayer after, and before I could get up there, the lady said, I see you dancing. You look like an angel. So I knew I had to go try out for the thorn, and I did, and I was one of, I guess, five moms um, who was an aisle dancer for the thorn along with all the teenagers. But I was going through a divorce at the time, and it was so healing. Uh, all the teenagers called me Mama Angel because I brought water and snacks for them. Um, but it just shows me how God takes your pain and starts refining you to use it for him. Uh, I also realized that as you were talking about, Paula, using the right side of my brain, the creative side of my brain, and starting to create with my creator was such a healing process for me. I began to make jewelry, um, do more with dancing. I began more writing of the book, uh, and that was also very healing for me and refining. 
So from 2009 to 2011, there, were, uh, there was a lot of chaos, division, and spiritual warfare in the home. And in 2011, after 21 years of marriage, Russ and I separated and then divorced. Another fire to walk through, but if God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. I had no idea how I would do it all as a single mom, plus go back to work after 20 years as a stay-at-home mom, but trust in God. So just rinse and repeat the steps from the year 2000 as I tapped out my bucket list, made lists of things I wanted to do and did not want to do anymore. God gave me a download. Dearest Angela, I have plans for you beyond your wildest imaginations. Pray against distractions that the enemy throws in your path. I will use your many gifts that I have been developing in you as you have walked through the refining fire. Focus on the refinement and how you have come out of it stronger, bolder, more determined. You are not a shy, timid girl anymore. Shake off the wounds, the smoke, the ashes. The enemy of your soul will try to keep you walking around in the ring of fire. You have stepped through it. Stay the course toward the destiny I have called you to. I will make your career choice clear, one step at a time, one day at a time, one person at a time. Continue to open your heart for healing and transformation. And as I researched fire in the refinement process of precious metals, the heat is turned up and impurities are burned out of the metal. And when God turns up the heat in our lives, is he burning the impurity out of our hearts? Hmm, look at Daniel in the Bible. He was chosen out of the Israelites, royal and noble blood, without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. He was trained to work for the king, and he chose to be to ob obedient to God over bowing to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he, along with his friends, walked out of a fiery furnace unscathed. God will deliver those who are faithful to him. So... Just to wrap up, we have two choices in the fire. Will you whine, which I did, or will you be refined? You can do both. I, I did both. You may be in the fire right now, but do you know who controls the thermostat? Pain is leading to gain. Don't waste the pain. Learn the lesson. In the fire, will you be bitter or will you be better? Will you be blaming God? Or you, will you be looking to find a new passion? Every painful time is refining you. The reason the fire is so hot is because God has something amazing in your future. Don't just go through it, grow through it. It's the refiner's fire. It's to prepare you for what lies ahead. Pain births you into the fullness of your destiny. And as difficult as it is, embrace it. Remember what Brian said last week, start showing God an attitude of gratitude. So this is what's happened since the divorce. The chaos and grief were deep for about a year, and then the refinement continued and still does. In 2014, Spencer went into a group home where he can live with his peers and be an adult. In 2015, I became an empty nester and signed on with a publishing company. In 2016, I completed my book and had it published. In 2018, God weaved some threads of the tapestry together from high school, and I remarried. And in 2019, we purchased a home in Littleton, moved back to our roots and our hometown. I've tried all kinds of jobs in nine years. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. 
but God's leading me towards starting my own business, encouraging middle-aged women to recover and rediscover their creative selves because so much healing is done in the right brain. I'm convinced of these truths. In all God's goodness and glory, he is so good. When we surrender to his will, God puts the pieces of the puzzle together to complete an amazing piece of art. He turns the mess into a masterpiece. God takes the bitter and he makes it better. He takes our pain and he turns it into our platform. God puts the chapters together into a beautiful life story. He turns our mourning into dancing, quite literally in my case. God takes the broken pieces of our life and makes them whole. He takes our testing and turns it into testimony. God refines us in the fire to use our passions for his kingdom. So when the fire in your life heats up, will you walk around in the ring of fire or will you walk through it and let the refiner burn those impurities out of your heart so that you can be more like him? Because the afterglow is amazing. Now, I don't know where any of you are at in your life. You may be in the why. Everybody has a story. Everybody has time in their life when they're being refined or there's a struggle. So you may, may be in the why, you may be in the how, or you may be in the fire but just take God's hand and let him walk you through it. Thank you. <laughs>